Our Father, we thank you for this day that we gather. We thank you that as we come into your presence together to sing and to worship you, that we count, O oh God, on your spirit to meet with us and draw us even closer to yourself. Would you open your word to us now, that as we study it together, that those parts that God, your spirit, just needs to implant deep into us, we want him to have freedom to do that. Lord, where distractions may come or where we need that special gift of grace, we cry out for it. And so guide us now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. As we come together today, it's great to be able to worship and begin particularly to reflect on this coming season. The Advent season is a great time of waiting and preparation. There's so many things that take place in our culture and society. Lights go up and shopping centers are full of uh, reminders that this is the season. Uh, we kind of gear ourselves up in so many ways, and, and it is a great time of season, but we can also get very distracted by just the celebration and kind of get lost in that celebration and forget what the heart meaning of it is. And so every year I love the season, but I also have to constantly remind myself about what it is that we are celebrating, that the resurrection of Christ is at the heart of all this. It's his birth, yes, but also points forward to why he has come. So in our celebrations, there's a lot of things that you probably do. You have traditions, your family gathers. One of the things I love to do every year centers around a Christmas carol. Charles Dickens' classic, as he writes about the, uh, the miserly Ebenezer Scrooge. In fact, as he writes that, just his, if you've never read the book, I'd encourage you to read the book. There's just, his use of language is wonderful. So as you know it, it's the story of, and he describes Scrooge this way. He says it's the transformation of a squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner. Isn't that just a great kind of language? Can't you just picture him all kind of gnarled up, hanging on to his money and things like that? Maybe if that's not your bag, you like the Muppets Christmas Carol. How many admit to having seen and enjoyed the Muppets Christmas Carol? Oh, wow, this is a bad crowd this morning. There's only two or three of you. I, Daniel, you and I will get together and do that. But it's a, it's a musical and so at the beginning, when Scrooge is introduced, if you've never seen it, and you've got to like Muppets, of course. I'm, I'm a sucker for that kind of stuff. And, but as Scrooge is introduced in, this, in that version, he comes in, and there's a musical number that describes him. And he walks the city of London, and all these little Muppet characters are surrounding him, singing about him, and describing his character. And the song lyrics go like this. It's, it starts, when a cold wind blows, it chills you, chills you to the bone. But there's nothing in nature that freezes your heart like years of being alone. And that's who Scrooge is. Years of being alone, a frozen heart. There's more. It goes on, though. The chorus that gets repeated is this. They sing and they say, oh, there goes Mr. Humbug. Of course, you know that phrase. There goes Mr. Humbug. There goes Mr. Grim. If they gave a prize for being mean, the winner would be him. Oh, Scroogey loves his money. You could sing along if you want to see the movie. Scroogey loves his money because he thinks it gives him power. If he became a flavor, you can bet it would be sour. Oh, I'm getting more people admitting to it now. 
right? If he was a flavor, it would be a sour flavor because that's who he is. And so as the story goes on, this Scrooge, this sour individual, curmudgeonly old guy who is kind of against everything about Christmas or really just against people in general, the story is that through these visitations of some ghosts overnight, the ghosts of past and the ghosts of Christmas past, present, and future visit him. And he goes through this, uh, this really a story of redemption of his heart. Redemption that draws him back into some kind of meaning and purpose and, and love and joy in his life. At the center of this is the story of, his, of a family. It's his worker, Bob Cratchit's family, and little tiny Tim. Even if you haven't seen the movie or read the book, Tiny Tim, you understand who Tiny Tim is, the little cripple boy of this family. And it's interesting that Tiny Tim and his family are really kind of a faith picture through the story. It's not a Christian book, but it is based about Christmas, and Dickens in his culture brings a lot of, uh, really there's a, a sense that Jesus is alongside the story. But it's through Tiny Tim that in a couple of places you really are seeing that there's a spiritual redemption that takes place here. Because it's Tiny Tim gets described as being in church on Christmas Eve. And Bob Cratchit, his father, is asked, and so how was he in church? And he says, well, Tiny, you know, he has a lot of time to think. And he makes this interesting comment. Tiny Tim says that he hoped the people saw him in church because he was a cripple. And it might be pleasant to them to remember upon Christmas Day, he who made lame beggars walk. And blind men see. It'd be nice for people to understand Jesus is at the heart of all this. And Scrooge goes through this night, this night of wonders. And so many maybe haven't read it. Spoiler alert here. If you don't know what happens in this story, Scrooge is transformed. Scrooge is transformed. And, and when he wakes up Christmas morning, he realizes as he wakes up in his, his bed that all this has taken place overnight. And he hasn't missed Christmas. And on that Christmas morning, he gets up and he begins to dance and he shouts and he's giddy with joy and with glee. He, he's so, he just doesn't even know what to do. He's so happy of what's taken place. And all the things that he pictures that he's going to be able to do and just what's going to be next. And he's dancing and he, he cavorts around his bedroom. He even stands on his head at one point and half scares his, uh, the, the housemaid that's there helping him. You know, she runs out because she's never seen him act this way before. And the description of Scrooge at the end of the book is that he became as good a friend, as good a master, and as good a man as the good old city knew or any other good old city, town, or borough in the good old world. This is Scrooge transformed, changed totally. And why am I talking about this this morning? Because as we come to Acts chapter 4, which is where we're going to be in just a couple of minutes, in Acts chapter 4, verses 32 to, 7, 32 to 37, this is the summary of a people who have gone through the same kind, well, not the same kind, but in the same way, a transformational moment in their hearts and their lives. 
If I was going to stage somehow these verses that we're going to look at this morning, I would want to insert this boundless energy and a giddy joy and that sense of just being overwhelmed with what else could we do to celebrate what has taken place. That's what Acts 4 is all about. The church is being founded. The church as it gets started. Luke is bringing us to this place where it's saying, here is the church blossoming. The church kind of unfolding. And he's allowing us peek through the windows into this group of people and all that they are, all that's coming upon them and how they are being transformed and what's happening. He's letting us look as if it were, at here is a great diamond that has been unearthed. And as it's been unearthed and they've kind of blown the dirt off it and everything, there's a diamond kind of still in its roughness, but you see the glory of it. And those miners that have found it are just amazed by what it is. It'd be like miners finding a vein of gold. And as they discover it, suddenly it's like, look at what we have. And who knows what all it's going to become, but there's this great moment of joy. That's what's happening in Acts 4, 32 to 37. This is the church. This is this band of believers that have prayed, as we looked at last week, that had gathered together through persecution and some storm that had come upon them, and they'd seen God deliver Peter and John, and they had gathered in prayer together, and they lifted their hearts to God and said, Oh God, stretch out your hand and heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders. And God responds, He shakes the building they're in. He says, I'm here, I'm listening. And as he shakes the building, it says, and he filled them with his Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God boldly. And as these people filled with the Spirit begin to gather together, that they come, and as they gather, we are given this glimpse of who they are becoming in this fullness of God's Spirit. John Stott in his commentary says, Luke is concerned to show that the fullness of the Spirit is manifest in deed as well as word, service as well as witness, love for family as well as testimony to the world. It's an all-embracing attitude and action that comes upon the church. And there is a joy that bubbles out of them as if they don't know what to do next. And as we get a chance to look at it this morning, I'm just going to identify six remarkable kinds of characteristics. And I use that word remarkable, and I'm going to use it all morning. Remarkable is just that sense of that it's out of the ordinary, and it's worth noting. It's worth taking a picture of. It's worth saying, here is these people, and what has taken a place among them, we need to mark it. And it's remarkable because it's not natural. It's not normal. It's not the normal course of a group of people getting together. Something has taken a place among them that has made this unique. And it's really setting the stage for the rest of the book of Acts. That the spirit-filled church has this remarkable response to what God is going to accomplish among them. And it's in the book of Acts, and it carries on through the history of the church. That this response of believers to God moving among us in the fullness of his spirit that elicits these kind of responses among us becomes the marks of what God's church is all about. 
So we'll just look at these six remarkable characteristics. It starts in verse 32, or let me, I'll read the whole passage for us, and then we'll go back and look. So Acts 4.32, we read this. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. And with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And much grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them. They brought the money, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone as he had need. And Joseph a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. The first remarkable feature of this group of people, verse 32, all the believers were one in heart and mind, a remarkable unity among them. Heart and mind being one. The unity of the church is remarkable because remember who these people are, first of all. If you think back to Acts chapter 2, we're introduced to who had gathered in Jerusalem in these days. Do you remember that long list that we read as the chapter began in Pentecost? It says there that there were Parthians, Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. All of these different groups were there, not to mention the Roman guard that was there, not to mention the politically diverse people who were there. There was this great crowd of people in Jerusalem, just like any other metropolitan kind of city. And out of that great host of people, God had gathered a huge variety. We're talking about thousands of people at this point as the church has exploded in numbers. And they are all being gathered together, and this great company of people are described as being one in heart and mind. That's just a great phrase to describe what friendships or what a relationship is all about. In the Greek ideal of what friendship is, it was described in this way. It's a single soul dwelling in two bodies, one in heart and mind. It's this idea of a deep, intimate friendship. So close that two people are said to be one. It's that whole idea of being a kindred spirit with somebody. That you just connect on a level that says we, are, we think alike and we move alike and we, we have all these commonalities that we share together. But it's also part of the Old Testament ideal of friendship, which is total loyalty. The Old Testament, we see the loyalty of friends, perhaps best seen in Jonathan and David. Go back to Samuel and read this story. Jonathan, David, but Jonathan, the king's son who sees the new king coming, who's willing to give up everything for him. And he promotes David above all things. This idea of total loyalty, that's friendship. Of giving your heart and your soul and, and your purposes over to someone else and joining with them. And so the church in this remarkable unity that all the believers were coming together in this one heart and one mind. It's that sense of being born out of a common heritage and a, and a purpose. It's not duty. It's not coercion. It's this coming together and saying, yes, we have been melded together in this unique way. 
And all through Scripture, we are given many different descriptions of this. In Ephesians 2, 19, we read this, that we are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. There's a deep belonging for those who become part of the body of Jesus Christ. For when you're grafted in, when you receive Jesus Christ and by his, by his forgiveness that comes through the cross, when we recognize our sins and we repent of this and call upon a Savior, we are brought into the body of Christ. We become members of his household. And as members of his household, it's a belonging together. In the same way that I belong to my family, just because I am birthed through my mother and my father, I am a part of that family. Like it or not, there is a bloodline there that makes me part of that family. This is the bloodline of the family of God. That being born of the Spirit, by having the Spirit dwell within us, we are now part of God's household, His family, members together. And so it uniquely puts us in a place to experience this unity. It's also the answer of Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17, that his people would be one. They would understand a unity. John 17, Jesus, in the night before, all that takes place in the cross and crucifixion, praying for his disciples that are with him and who are to come. He prays this. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus prays for a unity among his followers, that they would understand in the same way that the Father and the Son are one, which is a remarkable thought for us to appreciate, that in that same way, he prays that we would understand that as they are one, we are one with them as well. That we would be united. And he says that in this unity of my people will be this wonderful testimony to the world that they will understand that God has sent the Son into the world. That he is the sent one to come and to save us and offer us his redemption. In Romans 12, 5, Paul describes the same similar thoughts in this way, that we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. So his picture takes it that we are these individuals who have been saved, but we are brought together, and it's talking about our spiritual giftedness. It's talking about how we connect together. And he says the picture is that we all in our separate identities and as individuals are brought together to become one body. A unified body, a unified presentation of the presence of Christ in this world. And so all of us who in Christ dwell together, we come and, and we have a part to play in, in being the representatives of God and of Christ in this world. And so a unity, it's a remarkable unity of this diverse band of people who are able to come together and unite together in one heart and one soul, one mind before God and before all the people. And it becomes this incredible testimony to all who would gather to see it. And uh, out, of this, uh, out of this unity then is rebirthed all that is to come. All these other remarkable characteristics 
because with one heart and mind they dwell together. And the second characteristics that's birthed out of that is the rest of verse 32, where it says, being one in heart and soul mind, it says, no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. This is a remarkable stewardship. It's a remarkable attitude of what their possessions mean to them, being part of the body of Christ and of, of God himself. This is spirit-filled stewardship, that description. Not any of his possessions were their own. That they overcame that sense of selfishness, that sense of grasping, greeting. Remember Scrooge's description? Clenching, covetous, old sinner. Well, that's who we all are. It's who we all start off with until we are released from this by the Spirit of God. And we are able, as, as we become part of the body of Christ, to recognize that we now serve a higher master. We serve a Lord and a Savior, and we give ourselves to Him in uh, our submission to Him. We surrender our life, our rights, and we surrender all of our possessions to Him. And we become just a steward. We become one who manages His resources to His glory. And so these people in this day, they basically said, nothing we have is our own. And so we share it with everyone as it is common. And this is a spirit-filled gift that comes to them through God. See, that's a great description of what stewardship is all about. To recognize that in Christ, nothing I have is my own. For I submit and I surrender everything to him. It's a principle we see in the Old Testament. Back in 1 Chronicles 29, King David, as he led the people to be preparing to build the temple, remember the Lord said that he wouldn't build it, but Solomon would. But David said, then I will raise all of the funds to build the temple. And there was a great ingathering of wealth to build a glorious temple to God. And as that wealth was all collected, David led the people in a stunning prayer of praise to God and he lifted up God and he said everything comes from you Lord and we give you praise and glory to that and then he makes this comment he says but who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this everything comes from you and we have given you only what comes from your hand that's a spirit-filled stewardship you know, David's saying, we're here celebrating all that we have to give to you, God, but who are we? You know, in a sense, who are we kidding? Everything comes from you. Everything is yours, and you've put it at our disposal to you, and we're just giving back to you what you have given to us. That's a spirit-filled stewardship. That's a sense of giving it all to God and using it all for his glory. And so this church filled with the Spirit is ready to say, all we have is yours, God, and we share everything. No one claimed that this is their own, but they are able to invite others in and to share and to use it. It's really, it's the Spirit-filled hospitality of the New Testament church. It's one of those gifts that God gives to the church where he calls us to be hospitality and, and welcoming in strangers. It's the call that we, as a church family, as, as people come to us and as we interact with our neighbors and we draw people here, it's because, oh Lord, we cry out, help us to be a hospitable people. 
That's why we open our homes up. We should have people over. We should do things that we can in order to share what God has given us to share in other people's lives, to have an openness to invite other people's in. In Philippians 2, Paul says that if there is any fellowship with the Spirit, in humility we should consider others better than ourselves. That's a Spirit-filled sense of remarkable stewardship that's able to say, I think of others first. I put the selfishness of my old nature behind me, and I'm able to reach out and see how God would use this in other people's lives. So it's a remarkable unity that sparks this remarkable attitude of stewardship among them. But then it goes on. He says next that there's also a remarkable testimony among them. Look at verse 33. It says, With great power the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. This speaks just as the continuing message of the apostles the continuing sense of the proclamation of the Lord Jesus, that they are sharing in this common mission. But there are two sides to the message, the power, the grace that's being seen here. The first side is that there's a spoken testimony that continues. The preaching of the apostles, the preaching of the church. They spoke the word of God boldly. They were able to proclaim what God presented to them as truth. But there's also a testimony that is seen in this church. There's a great power that is being evidenced by what is seen by those who surround them. And it's the love of the disciples for each other. It's this love that allows them to share. It's what Jesus said in John 13 when he gave to his disciples a new command. And he said, the new command is this, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. For by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Jesus says, a mark of my family, a mark of my church, a mark of those who have been touched by my love is that they will love one another deeply. And he says, that will be a testimony to the world that surrounds you. And this first church, part of their remarkable testimony, part of the power that the apostles continued to be able to have was because it was backed up by the transformation of a people. The transformation of a people who were changing before the eyes of of the the neighborhood, the eyes of their families. And this spirit-filled company of united, sharing, and testified people experienced a remarkable grace. It's after this testimony, you read in verse 33, it says, And much grace was upon them all. That the power of the testimony was in the grace that, that was being seen. Grace is a favor that's bestowed. When it comes from God, it's God's favor that rests upon our life, that we understand his presence, that we know that his hand is upon us. It's when they prayed, stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs, and God comes and moves upon them, and they understand his presence with them. It's also the daily presence of God within us. A couple of weeks ago, Derek, as he was preaching, made the difference between being full of the Spirit and being filled with the Spirit. We are full of the Spirit when we are saved, when God by His grace, enters into our lives. He gives us the gift of God's Spirit, and we are full of the Spirit. 
And so when we are full of the Spirit, we understand His presence. Romans 8 says that His Spirit testifies with my spirit that I am a child of God. That's the fullness of the Spirit. That I have assurance that I understand His presence with me. That I know He will walk with me in peace and give me direction and help me to find the, uh, the way and to understand truth and lead me into His counsel. It's His peace when circumstances call me to panic or despair. It's his sense of truth when we are faced with conflict and the lies of the enemy. It's the testimony of the resurrection of Jesus when everyone else wants to tear it down and apart, but there's an assurance in my heart that this is true and real. This is God's grace resting upon us. And there's also a favor that can be experienced for man. In chapter 2, that was part of the summary of what the church, that they had the favor of the people See, that's when the church is at its best. When the church is at its best, working through the Spirit filling, and they are able to care for the, care for the world that surrounds them, to care for the poor and the sick, to build the hospitals, to, to build education. It's been the history of the church through all of the ages. Social concern and, and structures have so often come out of church life and material. That's what the church has been great at. And that's when the church is at its best, when being filled by God's Spirit, that we're able to move and act in the city around us. And there's this remarkable grace that's upon us. And then in that grace that's upon them, it leads them to remarkable sacrifice. And in this church, it showed up in their giving. It showed up in God moving in hearts of people to give remarkably. Look at verse 34. It says, There was no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them. And they brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. It's really the setting up of the first benevolent fund. Right? We have a church. We call it our benevolent fund. We ask people to give towards it. And praise God, there's a generosity among our church that we have a healthy benevolent fund. And in that benevolence, we do so many things that we do in this neighborhood. But this is where we start. It's a benevolent fund that says we bring it together and we put it in the hands of the church. And there were those individuals who sold their possessions uh, notice that that's a, it's, different, it's a different kind of giving than what we saw in the attitude of stewardship. Back in verse 32, in verse 32, people retained their possessions. They owned, but they owned it, but recognized that it was to be shared with everyone. So it's not just a call to say, hey, we should all give up everything we have and kind of that, that communal style of living, that you just pool everything. But it's this sense of there's a stewardship that says, yeah, Lord, you've given this to me to share with others. And then the difference here is, and sometimes we're called to sell what we have. Sometimes God may move upon us in a wonderful way to say, you know what? You have extra. You have something that could be sold, and that money could be taken to the church. It could be taken to that benevolent fund. It could be taken and used in a, a wider way among God's people or for God's purposes. This is grace being outpoured, a sacrificial giving, a sacrificial sense of, I can be part of what God is doing in a remarkable way. I think this is where the, the giddiness of Scrooge shows up. 
you know, those people were saying, I get to sell something. You know, what can I do next? I, I could sell my house. I'm not using that house. It's maybe an extra house. I could sell that piece of property that's just been sitting there. I could sell that piece of property that's being used. But God, you're putting it in my heart that I could sell that and see those funds brought and bring it into the church so that it could accomplish greater purposes for your glory. It's grace being outpoured through these individuals in these sacrificial ways. One commentary describes it this way. It says, with a mindset of unity, we will view our economic resources as available to meet others' needs. We will voluntarily, periodically supply our local assembly's common fund for the poor. Such a structure should not bind the Spirit's prompting to be generous as we encounter various needs, nor should it become a matter of obligation. So it shouldn't hinder us and we shouldn't feel compelled, but we should feel free. And it's this last sentence that really struck me. If grace is on us, we will be gracious to others. I mean, that's just such a deep part of who we are in Christ. If grace is on us, I can be gracious to others. When I recognize how much I've been forgiven, I can forgive others. When I recognize God's mercy on me, can I show mercy to others? See, this is the gift of the Spirit-filled church to the world, that we are the reflection of Christ Himself to them. And this remarkable giving that was prompted by the Spirit among them became just a great mark of who this church was so that no one was needy among them. They just said that we will care for each other in deep and remarkable ways. And finally, the Spirit-filled church re uh, rejoiced in remarkable leadership. Joseph kind of gets tacked on to this, and you can kind of read it as, whoa, why does this little couple of sentences about Joseph show up here. Well, it ties together. We're going to see more next week why we need to understand Joseph's heart and all this. But I think it's also saying that there is a remarkable leadership in the Spirit-filled church. Barnabas is introduced here as a Levite from Cyprus. And the apostles knew him well enough to call him the son of encouragement. He's someone that is being raised up out of the church now, out of the church family. He's someone who has come to know Christ and has been part of this gathered company of believers. And as the church is going to grow and multiply and extend, it needs a leadership. It needs those who are going to come up from among all of the people and be recognized as those who are going to help take them to the next levels. And Barnabas is introduced here quickly as one who's going to become a key figure in the book of Acts. We're going to hear so much more about him. But he's introduced here in this very simple way that just says, look at the characteristics of this man. This man, part of this spirit-filled church. He says that, uh, well, first of all, he's part of the spirit-filled church, good part of leadership. But he's demonstrating servant leadership. He's demonstrating that sense of coming forward and being a part of what the apostles are doing. He's already demonstrated ministry capacity. The apostles have said, let's call him the son of encouragement. <laughs> Look at how he cares for people and the things that he's accomplishing. And he's also demonstrating this sacrificial spirit. He sold property. He sacrificed that which was his and said, I will bring it and be a part of all that is going on. 
These are the remarkable marks of a spirit-filled church. Oh, that God would fill us as a people. That these would be the marks that we have. And they are. We see them bubbling to the surface all the time. And we need to encourage each other and bless each other and pray for God to fill us afresh in so many different ways. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up at this time as we move from this part of our service into communion. I'm also going to ask Pastor Dwayne's going to come this morning and kind of share some things that are taking place among us that have to do with this spirit-filled blessing of God among us in our midst and how to be challenged by this. We're in a moment going to celebrate communion. And if you didn't pick up one of the cups on the way in, you can go out to the foyer now and do so. And uh, these little cups just have a, a, at the top a wafer. Wafer reminds us of the body of Christ, the incarnation, the fact that Jesus came, lived among us, and in his living among us, chose in his sinless life to eventually give his life up for us. And the blood is represented by this juice. A juice that reminds us that his blood was shed for us, that a penalty had to be paid, that a price had to be given. And this morning as we celebrate communion, Communion's for anyone here who is a believer. So if you've crossed that line of faith, if God has saved you and you've come to the place where um, you know Christ is Savior, then we invite you to celebrate communion with us. And if you're not a Christian today, if you're someone who hasn't come to the place where you've trusted Christ as Savior, if he hasn't saved you, we invite you to watch as we participate in communion together. Um, but as we celebrate communion, some people have come to us, um, and some of you are from other traditions, and say in the tradition that I was a part of and familiar with, often on Communion Sundays, we would give to a benevolent fund, and you don't do that at James North. And people can give to our benevolent fund at any time, um, but so much of what we do is benevolent. Our ministry is filled with benevolent. And as we've come across this passage today, this is, this is what occurred. John and Peter were in jail. In verse 29, Now, Lord, consider their threats. That's the threats of the uh, authorities. Enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. So God, even though we are put in prison for speaking your word with boldness, enable us to speak your word with boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal. Perform signs and wonders for the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. They spoke the word of God boldly. So they weren't concerned for their safety. They realized that their safety was found in Christ. And that although someone could take their life, no one could ever take their salvation because they were fully safe in Christ. But then they also weren't concerned about their own security in terms of their financial security. So as the Holy Spirit fell, they spoke the word of God boldly and all the believers were one in heart and mind and no one claimed that any of their possession was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there was no needy persons among them. And so God's grace was so powerful in the way that it moved, in the way that he moved in their midst, that they weren't concerned about their own safety, and they freely gave their resource to others. They just shared it. They saw what they had as God's and not theirs. We've not done this perfectly, but over the years, this is something that's been really core to James North. It's something we've tried to do. 
It's why we put housing in. Our housing has allowed us to have people move in with us who were struggling with homelessness, some precariously housed, um, some just struggling with, with, with housing stability, some were in encampments, and 49 people have moved into the 45 apartments or so that are right above us, some of whom worship with us every week, people that we have been able to walk alongside of and care for in Jesus' name. It also includes us walking alongside of the Karen. Refugees. We care for refugees around us. We've come alongside of and cared for those that are refugees in our midst, loving on them in Jesus' name. And so as one of the most displaced people groups in the, in the world, we've brought them in. We've walked alongside of them. I'll preach today there at 2 o'clock. And, and Close has come on staff. I mean, you can see him on the website as one of our pastoral interns. So we provide salary for him. And the Koran Church helped with that. But then on top of that, providing schooling for him and providing tutoring so that he can excel in his schooling. And it's one of the things that we've done just because of what we love in Jesus' name. I think of our youth. I had the privilege of teaching at our youth this past week, and, you know, 30-ish or so youth on Thursday night, a whole group of them, 18 or so, that have come from the community, from non-Christian homes, a number of them from more marginalized homes that are coming. And as we're there sharing the gospel with them, walking alongside of them, believing that God is at work in their lives, we have the chance to offer a safe environment where they can hear the gospel and come and participate, and God is at work. I think of the ways that we come alongside of people with Benella. This week, a young man uh, called us in his early 30s, unable to pay his rent, not attending here. And we were able to come and assist in that way. We went to the landlord and paid it so that he and his family didn't end up homeless this week. And there's lots that we can't do. But then when I think of Enjoy Life, which is our ministry to the Portuguese-speaking people on Tuesday mornings, where Marcia and Eleni share the gospel every week. You saw pictures of this last week, or The Hub where 35 or 40 people are gathering many weeks and we're able to share the gospel again and share in a meal and people are coming and able to socialize but hear the gospel. Coffee's On, which is our ministry to the marginalized on Friday mornings with emergency food bank and clothing and some weeks 50 people coming. And I could go on, right? The Christmas dinner is coming this Saturday where some people will tell us that this is the best Christmas dinner they get every year. Over, over 250 hampers this year will be handed out to families that need some assistance, including families in our own midst. And we do this in Jesus' name to come alongside of people and say, we love you in Christ's name. Because when God grabs a hold of your life, when his spirit grips you, you recognize that you want him to enable you to share his resurrection with the people around you. And to share what he's given you with others. You're released from the greed and the consumeristic day, the age that we're in. And when does it start? When you're saved. Not after you graduate and you got this good job. No, when you're saved. Not after you get married, not after you buy a house, not after you've reached some type of stability. When you're saved, God grips your heart radically to do this without excuse upon salvation. And so as we've come to this, you know, a number of weeks ago we were given a gift of $500,000 and, and we were asked to be able to match it by Christmas and that, that donor would take our mortgage, uh, which is right now $2 million, and uh, he would pay it off because we'd have 1.5 million left and we would pay him back at zero percent interest which would save us like 1.1 million over the life of the mortgage and um and in the last few weeks god has provided 180,000 dollars toward that 120 from those outside of the church that are partners with us and 
60,000 so far from inside, although two people came to me this morning and said, you know, my family's been praying about this, and between now and Christmas, we're going to give a gift of 5,000. So that brings us to 70,000. I mean, God, God's at work. Only God can do this. But I want you to tell, tell you one story, because I wrote to one of our donors and asked if there was anything they could do. They gave money through the capital, and they lived out Acts 4. They said, well, we don't have any extra right now, but we're going to pray about what God will allow us to do. And they looked around to see if there was something they had that they could sell. Because we were one of kind of three organizations that had approached them to see if there was something more because they give generously to lots of organizations. They had a license that they had planned to use that they prayerfully decided not to use. And they took that license and sold it. And they believed that that selling of that license would allow them to give each of our organizations $25,000 to be able to help with this. But the Lord provided that they could sell the license for double what they anticipated. And so they called me to let me know that they're so excited to be able to give a gift of 50000 And they just lived out Acts 4. They said, we have no cash right now, but we have stuff we can sell. What is it that we have that we can liquidate? What is it that we have that we can sell to be a part of it? And they just went out and did it. And then God provided double what they expected. And they said, you know what? In that, they didn't keep that double. They could have. There was nothing wrong if they did. But they said, we, we have more to give. God provided more so that we could be an even greater blessing. That's part of the 180,000. But is God not good? And I don't want you to miss in this season of our ministry, as you're deciding to participate in the life of James North, that this is what God is doing. That this is what he's choosing, how he's choosing to move, and the way he's choosing to provide. It's incredible. I mean, it's story after story after story after story of only what God can do. And we come to a table... And we take a piece of bread and a cup and we say, Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your salvation. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have chosen to give your life up for mine. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that out of salvation, you've birthed this entity, the church, that out of your salvation, you've allowed your people to gather from various language and culture and custom and tribe. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you've not only granted us salvation, but you've granted us each other. Is that not good news? And you allow us to be used in each other's lives powerfully so that as we do so, we see those that are with us that have more need have less need. It's not that everybody has equal share, but it's that everyone has fair share. I talk about this all the time. It's equal sacrifice, though, it's various amounts. Though the amount that each of us give will look different for every person. The sacrifice is equal. That's what God's calling all of us to. So that those in our midst that have less can have more and those around us that have little can have those needs met. And we do so in Jesus' name because he allowed for our greatest need to be met, our need of salvation. And so as you take this bread in the next couple of moments, you remember him, the incarnated one who came, who lived, who never sinned, and who had his body broken for us. And then you remember his blood represented by this juice shed for us. And then you say, thank you, God, for gripping my heart. And if you're like me, you say, and God, keep changing me, because I'm not there yet. God, keep working in me, that I would see my safety in you so much so that I would boldly declare the gospel. Listen, I was on a call this week because of Bill C-4 being passed, and on the call with people across the country, we were told this, that in a month, we will be on the wrong side of the law if we continue to faithfully preach the gospel. 
That's just what we were told. We will now be on the wrong side of the law if we faithfully continue to preach what God has said. And so what does that look like for us? Our safety is in Christ. It's in him. And then our security is also in him. That doesn't mean the Bible doesn't talk about, I mentioned this last week, about you need to have enough for retirement. I'm not saying anything like that. But our security is not in our savings. Our security is in Jesus Christ the Lord. And his body was broken and his blood was shed for us. Would you pray with me? We are thankful, Lord Jesus Christ, for your incredible gift that you would choose to allow your body to be broken. First, that you would incarnate yourself as we celebrate that this time of year, that you would choose to cloak your deity with humanity and come and live among us. That is amazing. And then that your body would be broken, though you never sinned, that your blood would be shed, though you did not deserve that. And you would do that for us so that we could be reconciled with you. For that, we are ever thankful that you would love us that much, that you would pay for our sin. And God, we confess, I, I, in my own heart, we got a long way to go. And so in this moment, God, continue to do the good work that you've started until it reaches completion. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.